What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We are brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm. I am joined by Nicole Yang and a special guest, Sam Sheehan, NBA, who today dropped some really significant news about the uh, Utah Jazz. What else can you tell us uh, about the drama? First off, I want to thank you guys for um, having me on the show. It's very hard for me to get some of my work out there. I think, um, you know, this is not something the league wants out there for obvious reasons. I mean, this is a a jazz team that has a, you know, a knack for losing star players, whether it's Gordon Hayward, and now everyone's sort of eyeing this Donovan Mitchell situation very carefully. So it's very testy. But what, you know, what I'm hearing from league sources and something, you know, a situation I've been monitoring very closely is that, you know, as we've sort of seen the rise of Rudy Gobert, champion of, uh, you know, D. LeBron, um, D. Raptor, um, you know, defensive real plus minus, all of these statistics that fans all recognize as some of the hallmarks of a great player. Um, Jazz players are realizing that Rudy Gobert is the best player on their team, and they've really started to sour on Donovan Mitchell and, you know, some of the things he's done, like score 50 points against the Nuggets last year, um, that they're now seeing that as sort of a selfish sort of act to sort of, you know, further his own brand, get himself on Sports Center when really they could have, you know, be throwing the ball to Rudy Gobert, you know, who had probably the greatest defensive season ever in the history of the NBA and, you know, just get him the ball and let him cook. And so, you know, to kind of paper over this problem, you saw the Jazz hold him out last night. Um, and, you know, Donovan Mitchell's camp has got to spin it that he's angry with, you know, the training staff. But, you know, this is something the Jazz don't want out there. So I, I can understand why they would not let me into Bristol, Connecticut, into the ESPN studios. They have staff there dressed as security guards that look like normal ESPN security guards, the guys that always throw me out. But it, it's a different group of guys. So, um, you know, I appreciate you giving me this outlet to sort of talk about this story that I've broken and you've seen many other NBA journalists, you know, that are don't quite have the same sources I do, you know, try and break their own news like Brian Windhorst. So, I mean, given your background, there are some people that question your credibility and, you know, mm-hmm. how legitimate your sources are. Why should people believe? Not the Genotime podcast, of course. We we recognize your, no. your sources on this podcast. No, I, I appreciate that, guys. I mean, this is, you know, unfortunately something all young journalists um, have to come up against. And it's something about speaking truth to power. You know, it's never going to be easy. This is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. Um, You never know when you're going to open up your phone and somebody is going to tweet a picture of you. Um, They're going to tweet a picture of your face and it's very close, or they might um, tweet a picture of a, a pig defecating on its own testicles. There's all sorts of dangers to this, but, you know, this is something you've got to be kind of built different, you know, Um, to to quote LeBron James, I, I, you know, I I feel like I'm built different. You know, people are fine if they want to not listen to the truth. If, you know, we do live in a very polarized nation now where fake news seems to run rampant, but I'm not going to give up. 
you know, I've been in the crosshairs of power structures in America before, you know, most notably tyrannical practices in what two for one chalupa day means at Taco Bell, family court uh, appearances, and all, all sorts of draconian um, height restrictions on the Incredible Hulk uh, roller coaster uh, at Universal Studios. There's all sorts of things. And I've won every single one of those battles. So even if people don't believe me, um, I think that my work will speak for itself. And eventually the truth will come to light. And, you know, everyone is going to be tripping over themselves to, to hire me. We appreciate the brave work that you do uh, reporting on the NBA, reporting on the Utah Jazz. Again, uh, make sure that you follow at Sam Sheehan NBA for more explosive content. Um, It's really crucial work you're doing. And uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to be here with the other Sam Sheehan. So once again, uh, thanks for coming on uh, before the other Sam Sheehan comes on. Tom, are we cut? Because I I need a place to crash. Do you mind if I come stay? Well, here, I'll let you throw a commercial, but I'm behind on some rent. We'll we'll talk off here. All right, we'll talk off here. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. And we're back with the other Sam Sheehan. Shout out to Sam Sheehan NBA for coming out again. What? Sam, how's it going, man? Good. Um, I feel like I got to warn you guys. I don't think that guy is very stable. I run into a lot of problems where <laughs> people confuse me and him, and I get a lot of the runoff for him. I, I got to say, I don't trust a lot of his reporting. You know, I'm sure you guys vet your guests well, but just a word of caution to your listeners. I, I don't know about that guy. We always appreciate you looking out for us. You were at game one of Celtics Nets. And That's right. How did that go? Well, first of all, I'd like to lay a scene. I've been going to Nets games for a long time. It's you know something about living in New York is there is Knicks tickets, which are exorbitantly expensive, and Nets tickets, which traditionally have been the opposite. Um, they practically give them away. And this was the case yet again for a playoff game. <laughs> nonetheless, for a what is a presumptive title favorite, which was rather jarring. But I will give some slight credit to Nets fans. It was a less um, apathetic crowd than it usually is. I've gone to Celtics Nets games before there. Um, I've been fine. It's been mostly Celtics fans when I've gone there in the past. This was the first time it was a little uh, a little testy, a little dicey in the uh, in the Barclays Center. Um, I will say that I probably deserved much of my heckling for standing up and clapping and saying good call every time there was a, um, a call that the Nets fans did not like. So, uh, you know, it's all in the game, so to say. So I do have to ask what you wore to the game. I think I saw you were contemplating showing up in Joker makeup, but yeah. what did you end up going with? I, I'm not fully Jokerified yet. I mean, if there is a game seven or a game five, I might look into it. But I, I was, I wasn't. The fact was, I was also going by myself, so I feel like there was like a limit on like what you could do. I feel like I would have startled some people being like a loner. 
guy in clown makeup showing up to a sporting event. So I felt like that was probably a one too many, um, one too many variables. So I just went in a regular Boston t-shirt. I feel like showing up to a, uh, to a NBA playoff game in full Joker makeup is how you end up with like an FBI agent trying to catch. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure I already have one, but like, yeah, at least like also like, uh, you know, a DHS officer or like, you know, a a caseload. I don't want to have a caseload. I want just the one guy who's, you know, reading all my DMs. So (laughs) are there any particularly memorable heckles? I laughed out loud just at like, one was like a 16 year old. It was a child. Like it was a a teenage child with his friends that just turned around to me and would shut the fuck up. You have enough of them that you can power it? I'm trying to remember. I got, there was the guy who yelled, uh, Jason Tatum's a little bitch in my face. There was that one. That one was pretty low. Like no style points there. Um, The literal child telling me to shut the fuck up was pretty funny. Um, Like I actually laughed at that one. That that was the whole, the whole section laughed at that one. One of the, one of the women on my right, like said, is he here by himself? Because I was one Celtics fan in a section of people. That one was like, wasn't even a heckle. It was just kind of devastating that I was hurtful. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if there was one other one. I kept saying that I get chopped cheese at the bodega. I'm a New Yorker, just like you guys. <laughs> and that didn't go over well. <laughs> I was mostly just like people screaming at my face and like yelling at me the things they were yelling at the players. So, because I, I would just kind of text on my phone once I was getting berated too badly. Um, <laughs> were you on an island? Were you the only Celtics fan in your like? There, near- there was. There was someone way down in the front, but like 13 rows down, like not close enough to be like, I was a little bit to the side. I wonder, I was not that far off the press. I wonder if like uh, Zach Lowe heckled me at some point that might've happened. So I'm going to, I'm just going to say that, uh, you know, for posterity of the pod, my my favorite heckle was when Zach Lowe um, said that he was not welcoming me to the Low Post podcast. And he, um, he didn't even tell me that his dad taught high school. That's how much, that's how mad he was at me. <laughs> when like the Celtics were clearly dead in the water. And I was said, I, I would, I would just say stuff like, all right, you guys forgot about the five point play, but here it comes. Like, you know, stuff like that. So, and that, uh, that makes everyone okay at the end, but uh, everyone was very mad at me when the Celtics were up. Let me put it that way. It was not a laughing matter in the second quarter. Everyone was in better spirits by the end of the fourth. Yeah, well, I mean, what, so what did you think? I mean, we talked about the game. What were some of your takeaways? So I actually came away pretty heartened. I think the biggest thing I noticed, and this was sort of the same for bits and pieces of the, the Wizards playing game too, is that Celtics really seem to have flipped the switch with defense. I'm still kind of jarred by that, like how connected the defense was. I mean, maybe that's what happens when you shorten the rotation and you put in certain personnel, but This was also a rotation that prominently featured Jabari Parker noted for coming in halfway through the season, A and B not being a, let's say, defensive stalwart. And, you know, I was pretty blown away with how good, I can't remember the last time I saw the Celtics pull off a successful scram switch. Like stuff like that was like well beyond them most of the season. Like, and here they are playing a connected defense that requires a lot of switching you know, scramming in particular when there's a bad matchup, like they shot Kemba out of that Kevin Durant matchup a couple of times to get Evan Fournier in there, which I mean, still, still not an ideal matchup, but I don't know. I, I have to feel like this game probably would have been a little bit different if Kemba hadn't picked up the foul trouble. And if Jason Tatum wasn't so irritated by Kevin Durant, like 
in the like fourth quarter there because a lot of the other stuff really went the Celtics way. I mean, I'm sure you guys talked about this, but what really jumped out in the stadium was that Nets have not only have no answer for Robert Williams, but are actively frightened of him. I'm like not even kidding. Like I'm talking about like also the only net that wasn't really didn't seem that scared of Robert Williams was Kyrie Irving. Kevin Durant was very aware of yeah. Robert Williams every time, like, which, I mean, that's a good player to half that because he can just shoot from anywhere. He doesn't necessarily need to go inside, but this certainly does make me think about what sort of the complexion of this series would be if Jalen Brown was healthy. And if this was out 100%, you know, Robert Williams, who could afford to take the lion's share of the minutes from Tristan Thompson and start and do some of this other stuff. Yeah, to your point about the defense, I mean, today Brad was asked, like, basically, did game one show you what you need to do? Basically, he said, like, I thought we, I thought we played good defense. He said, um, you know, I feel really good about how we needed to play. And I, and I thought we did that, especially on the defensive end. And, you know, I mean, look, like they held the Brooklyn Nets to 104 points. The Celtics hit a lot of the benchmarks that they needed to hit to win the game. It's just that they scored 93 points. Like, yeah. they're not going to beat very many teams at all in the NBA, let alone the Brooklyn Nets when you do that. So, like, I, I certainly agree with, like, being heartened by the game one. Like, I, I think the Celtics are, and, and it, I think you're right about the Celtics flipping the switch defensively, which is bizarre. Like, that this team yeah. has like accomplished very little i mean like for them to like think well we can flip the switch and then to actually flip the switch is uh kind of insane that's like so jarring to me i'm kind of there's such an interesting thing i thought brad coached mostly a pretty good game and i'm really interested to see what he comes out with because i mean steve nash the nets were not running anything <laughs> The Nets were reactive um, the whole game. It was the Celtics who were sort of calling the shots and in control of the game. The Nets have the luxury of doing that by virtue of having, you know, two MVPs and Kyrie Irving, like a 40-50-90 guy. So they don't really necessarily need to feel any pressure. But the Celtics had a clear game plan. I mean, there was every time you put Blake Griffin in the game, we will go at him with Jason Tatum in a pick and roll. Um, You know, every time you guys try to find a matchup, you know, for Durant, we're going to try and scram out of it and, you know, get someone at least a little bit bigger than Kemba on there, trying to put too much pressure on that. We are going to play Jabari Parker during that soft bench slump to give the bench a little bit of shot creation um, and just hope that he can survive on an Island. And I think he, Aside from like two or three defensive breakdowns, I actually weirdly thought Jabari Parker did a pretty good job, honestly, like defensively. And just there were a couple of times he got matched up on Durant and, you know, a couple of times it went exactly the way you thought. And a couple of times he made things really hard for him. So I'm, I'm interested to see, A, if Nash makes adjustments or if Nash feels like he needs to make adjustments or B, like if Brad has the same basic game plan again or if he tries something a little bit different. You mentioned before we started recording that you've come around on Tristan Thompson after watching game one. And I'm wondering what spurred that. Tristan on the bench was the energy, (laughs) not on the floor, (laughs) but Tristan was bumping guys up. He was keeping everybody's energy and confidence at a certain level. And I think that's important for like a really young team. Now I don't, as far as Tristan Thompson's basketball contributions, yikes. But I don't know, I I am a little bit heartened that the team did seem to be like playing together a little bit more specifically, you know, and I I wonder if Tristan Thompson can fill the role because I do think there is something to say about you need someone in the playoffs who's a little bit expendable, who can instigate a little bit um, and get into things a little bit, you know, like when Kevin Durant and Jason Tatum get tangled up and stuff like that. And if somebody's got to stick up for somebody, you need a guy on the team who can, you know, pick up a technical or, you know, just being a tough guy. We've had Mark 
Marcus Morris, you know, in the past. The problem is that Marcus Smart, while certainly capable <laughs> of fulfilling that role, is now way, way, way too important to this team to yeah. play that role. So I wonder if Tristan Thompson, there might be a part for him to play in the, in that capacity, you know, sort of later on down the line in the, in the vein of the Marcus Morris uh, instigation. And just, you know, in terms of giving a young team that has its back against the wall, nobody's picking the Celtics to even, I don't even think, force a game six or seven. I think that's fair to say. I think everyone, I think if the Celtics forced a game five, everyone would tip their cap. I think everyone would be flabbergasted if there was a game six. So that's overwhelming odds. And I think he's done a good job at sort of what I saw in person was sort of a different Tristan Thompson that I was I don't know. I was impressed by it. I think that's good for the team, even though, even if his, again, his basketball contributions have something to be desired. Yeah, I, I could accept that. <laughs> you know, today Tristan was asked basically like the Nets seem like they have a swagger to them. What do you think about that? Basically. And Tristan was like, well, uh, we don't really give a shit about that. I don't think the Nets played with any swagger. They look like in, in game one, I'm like, I don't know. Like something's not totally right about the Nets. I mean, given they've played what, like 16 minutes together all season or something insane, like literally like a hundred or something. I don't know. The Nets need to like really blow the Celtics out and like really put the knife in before I totally write this series off. I mean, that's going to sound psychopathic to a lot of people, but something about that Nets team, like in person, there was not, there was no plays. There was no running anything. They didn't, they weren't playing like a team that knew they were better than the Celtics. And this is a Celtics team that kind of had like a little bit of pride on them. I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see what happens in game two. I don't think it's like, I don't think it's crazy to say that you kind of want to see this from the Nets. I mean, before the series, I was texting Nicole and Gretham like, like I don't know, like I kind of think the Celtics like could make some noise here. I, I probably got spicier than that, but like, like, like you said with Jason Tatum, I mean, the Celtics need to figure out a way to get him going better. But like, he didn't mm-hmm. run as many pick and rolls as he could have. Like, he didn't get to the rim as much, especially in the second half, as he did mm-hmm. in the first half. And like, those things really hurt the Celtics' offense. Like, I do think there are things that are that are fixable. Now, I also think that like a big part of what's happening here is that. That Kyrie, Katie, and, and Harden have only played eight games together. Every game that they do play together against the Celtics is another game that they play together and could uh, end up giving them that little bit of continuity. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it's crazy to think that the Celtics could push the Nets a little bit more than they're comfortable with. I don't know. I just being there in person, I don't know, like watching. I think honestly, the, the biggest reason I can't bring myself to give the Celtics a real chance is that the three point shooting is just too wild. Like it's just too much of a, if they, if they had more of a control over the three point shooting, I'd feel a lot better, if, but it just comes and goes. I mean, we saw it in game one, hot in the first half, gone in the second half. If Kemba hadn't hit those two late three pointers, like it would have looked so much, you know, it, that, that masked over how much, how bad it was, you know, that's really what lost them that game. I think that that's going to be, that's going to be the biggest problem for the Celtics is they, I really think they can generate good looks pretty much at will against the Nets. It's just, I don't know that they have the shooting talent to really convert on it at the level you need to, to keep pace with the Nets, even when they're playing, even when the Celtics are playing good defense against them. What was the tenor of your section during the first quarter when the Celtics were getting off to their hot start? Uh, well, the guy next to me said, bro, what the fuck? <laughs> I had um, I had uh, three young women on, uh, on the other side of me, and one of them said, isn't this, this isn't how this is supposed to go <laughs> at one point. So there was a little bit of confusion uh, early on, particularly when the Nets were missing all of their threes. They did, uh, they did, they did come around and it was back to heckling Jason. The Jason Tatum airball woke them up. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> 
that has sort of unified the section against uh, against the Celtics. Were you like actively cheering for the Celtics, or did you try and like keep it? Contained? Oh, I was pretty. I was pretty obnoxious. <laughs> I was pretty obnoxious, but uh, you know, uh, who won in the end? Who's to say? I mean, they at the when the Celtics when they went up ten at the end there with like two minutes left or whatever it was. Uh, I was getting jeered at pretty hard, but what they didn't realize is that Robert Williams almost had a block triple double. So really, I won in the end. <laughs> they didn't realize that was uh, that was basically a win for me. <laughs> Tried to tell them that, but uh, nobody would, nobody would listen to me. Rob Williams almost having like a, a block triple double, I feel like is like you are actually not mad about it. You actually are laughing about that with your with your hot yeah, like Exactly. <laughs> I very genuinely was not mad because I fully expected the Celtics to get blown out by 20. Exactly. So the fact that it was like a good game until like back-to-back turnovers basically killed it there down at the end of the fourth. Like it was a good game up until that point. And even though the Nets didn't shoot well, I feel like some of that is kind of sustainable the way the Nets play. They're, the other guys don't touch the ball much. Like it's hard to get a rhythm if you don't touch the ball a lot. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if the Nets continue not shooting well from three, but probably not that bad. But I really think the Celtics have a chance to, you know, at least make this six or seven games. I'm I'm not convinced. I'm very not sold on the Nets. While we have you on, I mean, you're you're a much smarter cap guy than I am. And I, I know that like, you know, that there's been a lot of conversation about if the Celtics don't look like a contender, obviously this team gets super expensive. Choices might have to be made. Um, curious what your thoughts are on, on that idea, especially like as it pertains to re-signing Fournier, as it pertains to yeah. you know, potentially trading one of Fournier, Smart, Kemba, like whatever it is. Obviously a lot of it just depends, like is are Wick Grosbeck and Steve Pagliuca going to be willing to pay? Um, yeah, I mean, where do you kind of come down on, on that conversation? It's so hard God, it's so hard to do just because of how low information this season was. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, cause there are even like something like what happened with the Sixers from between this year and last year, switching out Al Horford for Danny Green. is like a little bit of a change, but like they didn't change like that much. You know what I'm saying? Like the main pieces were still there. They switched coaches. Like this happens a lot in the NBA where like a team can look horrific one year. And I certainly think the Celtics are much closer to last year's team than this year's team. I don't know. I really think kind of like looking at where the Celtics are. I mean, the Celtics are still, I guess it kind of comes back to like, what's your philosophy on team building? Like, do you think this Celtics team, what do you think this Celtics team, um, how they're going to win a title? Do they have the firepower for it right now? I would say right now, even outside of like this bad season, even if everything broke right for the Celtics, they're still in the tier of need a little bit of luck. Like they probably can't win the championship as like title favorites or anything like that. They need like an, an injury to a rival or to catch like a correct amount of matchups or something like that. So you have to do the calculus there if that's worth it. The I think the two clearest paths, the Celtics making a tier jump up are, well, I mean, the only path is for them to get another talented all-star. Do you think the Celtics can realistically get that done with their current assets via trade in the next, you know, year or two? Or I think the only other realistic path right now is, do you think Robert Williams can stay healthy enough and continue to develop and become that third all-star? Because I think those are the only two realistic pass I think it's you know I think it's clear Kemba even though he has had a little bit of a bounce back year you know he's not going to be an albatross he's still a his best years are, are probably behind him at this point so I don't know 
this is all a long-winded way of saying I think that I'd like to see what happens with Robert Williams um, in a season where they're not playing a game every two days and I'm a very strong believer in Robert Williams and like the strides that he's made so I think he could really change the Celtics starting lineup just looks so different without him on there I really think that Celtics could make a leap similar to what Philly made just by getting him healthy and having him swapping him out for Tristan Thompson. I think that that's also probably where you make the money work is finding a new home for Tristan Thompson's $10 million, depending on, you know, what Evan Fournier is going to command in the offseason. I would I would try to re-sign Evan Fournier, try to find a new home for Tristan Thompson, and then get another, you know, try and find another cheap-ish platoon big maybe in the draft of some kind and just roll with it and pay the tax bill for at least this year coming up. It will be very expensive. Things change very quickly in the NBA. I feel like it's really hard to plan things more than two or three years out because things just change so quickly. So I think you just kind of do what's in front of you. And I think that this team with Rob has shown enough hope that I think it's worth doubling down, you know, one more year, I don't think a Fournier contract is going to be like an albatross. It's not as risky as like, say, Kemba's or something like that. So I would bring him back. And if you need to blow it all up and pivot or make some sort of big trade or cut cash later on down the line, you just do that later on. But I would I would hold this team together next year. Yeah, the Sixers are such an interesting parallel because there's so many like one-to-ones. Like Tatum yeah. to Embiid is like the young superstar who could be an MVP down the road. Jalen mm-hmm. Simmons is like the young all-star who was injured. Like, you know, between like last yeah. year's team and this year's team, like Evan Fournier is like the guy they traded for who then they have to re-sign to like big money because they traded for him. So you don't want like that, that sunk cost of the trade. There's yeah. Al I mean, Horford and Kemba Walker. Yeah. No, like, yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah, I mean, it's, the parallels really are there between those two mm-hmm. teams. And I mean, yeah, the Sixers went from a team that everybody was like, Oh boy. I mean, I don't know. They might have to break up. Um, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid to the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. I'm like, I, you know, I mean, they have a legit chance to uh, to win a championship this year. So yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to be in the conference finals barring some sort of absolute disaster. And whenever you can get in the conference finals, you can win the title, like no matter what. I, I think that there's enough reason, there's enough, especially just in this net series, seeing the Celtics can credibly play a decent defense with Evan Fournier and Kemba Walker prominently involved in the playoffs against literally the best team. That tells me a lot. I think it's really just getting another big because Rob probably still isn't ready for starters minutes, you know, like a real 36 per minutes per game. You know, the injury thing is still the big concern with Rob, but I don't know. I see with a Robert Williams in that starting five and Evan Fournier on the bench, I see a real team. I see a real dangerous team that could do a lot of damage come next year if everybody's healthy. But the, and the biggest thing is just if everybody's healthy. Has your opinion of Brad changed? Yes. Good question. (laughs) Great question. Because yes, I was very mean to Brad, particularly for the Miami Heat series last year. I'm still, I'm still very mad at him about that. Um, But this season has been largely not his fault, but I actually thought he had a great game plan for game one. I thought he did a really good job. Even the Jabari thing, which I think people are going to come at him about, I thought that mostly worked. I mean, he probably didn't need to go back to it in the second half, but I mean, mission accomplished. He threw the Nets a curveball they weren't ready for. I mean, he was doing things to Landry Shamit. Um, They weren't totally ready to exploit that matchup. And I'm not sure that would be in my bag for game two. If I'm Brad, I think I might try Romeo Langford just to, you know, keep the Nets guessing. You know what I'm saying? Maybe Grant Williams. It's Grant Williams time next game. Like uh, that's what I'd like to see him keep doing that. 
I'd like to see maybe a little bit more of Aaron Neesmith, who is literally Gerald Wallace reincarnated. He has no regard for his body whatsoever. He is like Marcus Smart Jr. Like, it's insane to watch. He is Crash Neesmith. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I'd i like to see some adjustments, but I thought the defense played really well. I thought the Celtics had a really good game plan. I think there was a little bit better execution in terms of three-point percentage and Kemba not getting in foul trouble. I think Celtics would have won that game. So kudos to Brad. I thought he did a really good job, at least in the first game. Are you going to game two? Uh, no, I have to I have to work late tomorrow night. So I actually, I won't even be able to watch the first part of the game because I don't get done work until later on. But if there is a game five, I would like to go to game five though. So Celtics, let's get that dub. I will be on the ticket website. If the Celtics pull out a win tomorrow, I will be on the ticket website exploring. It was very cheap. I got not nosebleed seats for uh, $120 to a playoff game. So, Did you use their like promo code, like Harden? I wanted to, but it was only for groups of four, and I was unfortunately going by myself. So <laughs> I couldn't find three people willing to risk me showing up in Joker makeup. Cool. So one of one of my friends, uh, one of my friends, his girlfriend who I'd met before was going to the game with her friends. She told him she would not meet up with me if I was in the Joker makeup. <laughs> she would not let me meet her or her friends if I was in the Joker makeup. So there's anti-Joker discrimination in the Barclays Center. You hate to hear it. I had to, um, for when Riff's man put on that, uh, you guys had him on the, the pod to talk about the, his drive. And I, I contributed my little video to it. I had to, part of getting that video together was ordering the special makeup that didn't show up in time. So I was like a day late with the... Uh, the thing so i have all this extra joker makeup that's like burning a hole in my pocket so to speak so there's uh there's lots of potential there excellent well here's hoping that the celtics can uh can take one of these games so that you can get back to another game uh before the end of this season um if you do we will definitely want to hear about it as always you can find you can find this sam sheehan on twitter at nice sheehan with a very pretty girl in the uh in the yeah, that's- yeah, it's my girlfriend's account. She's an NBA girl. It's account, yeah. As always, if anybody has any questions, comments, or concerns, you can feel free to um, get in touch with us, uh, DM us, whatever. Um, feel free to leave us a five-star review, uh, and we will talk to you all again later this week. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.